independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. Our current system of environmental protection laws and government here in the United States of America is truly fundamentally failing us. And that's because the way the laws are written and the way the laws are implemented, they are they are written in a way that accepts pollution and environmental degradation as a foregone conclusion. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to holistic healing, eco-regeneration, and true abundance and wellness for all. This is a community-backed show, so if you value our work, you can support us at patreon.com slash greendreamer or through purchasing our fundraising planners at greendreamer.com slash shop. Today we have with us here Maya Van Rossum, the founder of Green Amendments for the Generations, which is a grassroots nonprofit organization inspiring a nationwide movement to secure constitutional recognition and protection of environmental rights in every state in the U.S. and ultimately at the federal level as well. Van Rossum is also the Delaware Riverkeeper, leading the watershed-based advocacy organization, and she's also the author of The Green Amendment, Securing Our right to a healthy environment. If you've been feeling frustrated by the fact that we always seem to need extra regulations just to ensure we have our most basic rights to clean air, clean water, and unpolluted, safe, and nutritious foods, the things that we need to even survive, then you definitely should listen to this episode, learn about what Maya calls environmental constitutionalism, and join in, if you can, in this movement in support of the Green Amendment. Maya shines her light on all of these topics here and so much more, so so, Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. I've been doing environmental advocacy and litigation for over 26 years now, and I've had the, the true honor of being able to do that as my life's work. But as a result of that work, what I have come to realize is that our current system of environmental protection laws and government here in the United States of America is truly fundamentally failing us. And that's because the way the laws are written and the way the laws are implemented, they are they are written in a way that accepts pollution and environmental degradation as a foregone conclusion, really something to be embraced and just managed through permitting and reviews that happen sort of at the end of the decision making process when all that's left to do is figure out how you're going to manage the who, the when, the where, the how much pollution and degradation you're going to allow to happen. The system of laws and government that we have here in the United States of America does not focus first on how do we prevent pollution and environmental degradation? How do we prevent harm? How do we prevent the sacrifice of communities to the highly polluting industrial operations that, that is inflicting so much harm? And it's such a fundamentally important part of the environmental racism that we 
experience here in the United States of America, an environmental racism that is not happening in spite of the environmental protection laws that we have in place, but is actually happening because of those laws, because of how those laws are written and how those laws are intentionally implemented. So through the course of my my years of work and, and, and having that realization about our system of laws and government, I you know, was just increasingly looking for other more powerful pathways of protection. And in my work as the Delaware Riverkeeper and leader of the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, amongst one of the battles that we had been taking on for years was, of course, the battle against fracking for gas from shale, a highly polluting industrial operation. And we have been using advocacy to challenge the fracking industry for many, many years with varying degrees of success. But there came a day in 2012 when the Pennsylvania legislature passed a very pro-fracking piece of legislation that was going to even more empower the fracking industry that was already wreaking havoc on Pennsylvania environments and Pennsylvania communities. This pro-fracking law was literally written by frackers themselves. It was passed by the Pennsylvania legislature, and then it was signed by the governor. This law did a lot of bad things. It put in place automatic waivers from even the minimal environmental protection standards that were in place when it came to the fracking industry. It relieved the industry of the obligation to notify those on private drinking water wells that their drinking water had potentially become contaminated by nearby fracking operations. It mandated that communities allow this highly polluting industrial activity in the heart of their residential districts, and it did a lot more. And when this pro-fracking law was passed, I, in my role as the Delaware Riverkeeper, along with my team at the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, knew that we had to find a way to take on this law. But the thing is, how do you take on a law that's been passed by the legislature and signed by the governor? There aren't too many options. Usually people are forced to resort to protests to try to get their legislators to repeal the law that had just been passed, which definitely wasn't in Pennsylvania, or people try to elect better people into office, you know, into government office in the hopes that down the line in the years to come, maybe they will somehow roll back the damaging law. But that comes too late. So we knew, right, when we were thinking about this pro-fracking law, we had to find something different. And we reflected and realized that in the Bill of Rights section of the Pennsylvania Constitution, there was a provision that had for over 42 years been ignored by Pennsylvania's government and courts as just being a statement of policy and not really having any legal strength. But it was a provision that said that the people of Pennsylvania had a constitutional right to pure water clean air, and a healthy environment, and that Pennsylvania's government officials were duty-bound to protect the natural resources of the state for the benefit of present and future generations. And so as we reflected on how we were going to challenge that 
pro-fracking law, we realized that maybe we were in a moment in time when we could take this long ignored constitutional environmental rights amendment and get the Pennsylvania courts to reconsider how they viewed this amendment and this promise of environmental rights to the people of Pennsylvania. And so we claimed in court that this pro-fracking law, if it was allowed to be implemented, would in fact result in an unconstitutional violation of the environmental rights of the people of Pennsylvania as promised in this long ignored Bill of Rights Amendment. Long story short, the case went all the way up to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court and we secured an amazing victory. A victory that where the plurality opinion was actually written by the very conservative chief justice of the court. And he said that, yes, in fact, this constitutional right to pure water, clean air and a healthy environment had been misinterpreted by the Pennsylvania courts for over four decades. And that, in fact, these environmental rights must be respected, honored and protected as powerfully as we protect the other Bill of Rights provisions that we hold dear, like the rights to free speech and freedom of religion, private property rights, civil rights, and even gun rights. And the court declared the provisions of, of this law that we were challenging to in fact be unconstitutional because they would violate the environmental rights of the people of Pennsylvania. And so with that in that moment, with that victory, we defeated not only the most devastating aspects of this law, but we breathed legal life into this long ignored environmental rights amendment. And so I started to reflect over time the power and importance of what we had accomplished. And I started to look at all the constitutions of all the states across our nation. And I found that there was only one other state that had a constitutional environmental right like Pennsylvania had, and that that was Montana. And I realized that one of the most transformative changes we could make to the system of environmental protection here in the United States of America was to place in every single state constitution across our nation, and then ultimately in the federal constitution, a bill of rights provision that recognized and protected the rights of all people, including future generations, to pure water, clean air, a stable climate, it's one of my additions, hmm. and healthy environments. And that set me on this path of a national green amendment movement to try to secure constitutional protection of the environmental rights of all the people. So since that victory, you've been dedicated to empowering every American community to mobilize for these constitutional changes that you just discussed. And I feel like this can sound very daunting for people who don't have backgrounds in law who don't necessarily know our pathways to initiating structural changes to our states and to the country. So how would you lay out this pathway for people wanting to take matters into their own hands for their communities? And more generally, how does this work as in what is the process for getting constitutional changes at the state and federal levels? Well, what I really ask and invite people to do is please don't try to go off and do this on your own. Let's join together in partnership and let's do it together. Because while it's a pretty simple idea, this idea that we should all have a right to clean water and clean air, a stable climate and healthy environments, there are some important nuances that can make it a little bit complex to implement 
and to make sure that you stay on track to get a truly effective constitutional right. And so I do, I have started this national organization called Green Amendments for the Generations. And I invite people to go online, go to the forthegenerations.org website, and you can find a pathway to instantly connect with myself and my organization. And let me work with you to pursue this constitutional environmental right in your state. So that's sort of my first offering, but also my request, because it's really important to me that all the green amendments that that are passed are true green amendments, truly effective constitutional amendments, because there are a lot of states that talk about the environment in their constitutions. But there are only these two states, Pennsylvania, and Montana, that actually did it the right way in a truly meaningful way. So that's number one. Number two, yes, of course, getting a constitutional amendment, that is a big task, right? And and that can be, it can seem daunting, but in truth, it's all just a matter of process, right? Understanding what the process is for your state and then spreading the good word, getting people involved, starting a grassroots campaign like you would do around any other issue you care about, whether you were, you know, trying to change decisions that were happening in your local school district to getting another kind of just plain law passed. I mean, it's all about understanding the process and the process is a little bit different for every state, but understanding the process and then working step by step by step to inform people and to engage people to take advantage of that process. And usually the process for the most states, one of the pathways is really to get your state legislators to propose and adopt this idea of a constitutional environmental rights amendment. They have to vote on it and and pass it Sometimes it's a majority vote. Sometimes it's a three-fifths vote. Sometimes it's once. Sometimes it's twice. It's a little bit different from state to state. But once they 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 do their job as state legislators, then the amendment goes before the people to decide whether or not the people want to have it added to the Constitution. And that usually happens during your, your general election or sometimes during a special election. But most of it fundamentally at its core It's about educating folks, getting them to speak out, getting them to reach out to their legislators and getting all of us to join together in urging that our state government officials pass this constitutional green amendment that would recognize and protect environmental rights for all of us. And once we get this happening in enough states and we start to really build nationwide support for this idea, then down the line, we will be positioned to ultimately get a federal constitutional amendment. But we can't start there because in order to get a federal amendment, you need the support of three quarters of the states. So I want to start at the state level first, where the constitutional amendment pathway is much more accessible because it's really about people talking with their legislators in most states, um, which is very doable. And so we start at the states and then ultimately we'll get to the federal level. But people shouldn't go it alone. Contact Green Amendments for the Generations. Look me up on the website. I'm really easy to find. And let's work together to make it happen in your state. For a lot of us who have climate and earth justice as a top priority issue, we are, of course, slightly relieved that we have an incoming U.S. president that at least values science and recognizes the reality of the climate crisis At the same time, though, a lot of people are still skeptical, 
about us being able to make the changes that we need to make quickly and drastically enough because time is of essence and corporate interests and influence are still very much alive in Washington, infiltrated into both of the major parties. What is your honest take on how far this incoming administration may be able to take us at a systemic level in terms of achieving environmental and climate justice? And with this in mind, with this change in presidency, does that change your belief that we still fundamentally need changes at the constitutional level? So we have to remember that state governments are guided by state constitutional amendments and the federal government is guided by a federal constitutional amendment. And the states have a tremendous amount of power when it comes to the environment and the federal government has a tremendous amount of power and they each have their own pots of power. And so what we really do need to get transformational change, whether you're talking about climate justice or environmental protection or environmental justice, is we do need these constitutional environmental rights amendments at both the state level and the federal level so we can be holding accountable our state government officials and our federal government officials, right? So having state constitutional amendments won't be able to check an out-of-control Congress or EPA or president. And a federal constitutional amendment can have more impact at the state level, but it's not going to, to, to fully cover what is happening in terms of state authority. And again, that really is going to be something that has to come down the line. Mm. But we do have to remember that the states have a tremendous amount of authority when it comes to environmental protection. So while the federal government sets the floor In terms of the minimal level of protection states have to pursue, states can always do it better. And so that's why having these state green amendments and really inspiring, empowering, and holding state governments accountable for doing it better, particularly in the context of the climate crisis, is really powerful and important. And I want to say, you know, as much as I like to believe and I hear that that the new president and vice president believe in science and believe in the climate crisis and believe in environmental protection, we got two problems. First off, we have a system of laws that is fundamentally about managing and permitting pollution and degradation, not preventing it. That's a system of laws that they're operating in. So until we have a transformational shift in the laws, like a constitutional transformation that forces all government officials at every level of government to focus on prevention first, we're going to have a problem. Because if we implemented 100% of the laws on the books today, environmental laws exactly as written, we would still be facing a crisis, right? So we need to have something better, something transformational. And that's what constitutional environmental rights do for us. They're better and they're transformational. I'm also deeply concerned that The president, the vice president, as I've heard from so many government officials at the state level and at the federal level, they talk about believing in the climate crisis and climate change and science, and yet they still go out there talking about fracking as though it is an acceptable way of creating energy for us in this nation. 
Fracking for gas from shale is devastating when it comes to the climate crisis, particularly because of the release of climate changing methane emissions, as well as other climate changing emissions. And methane, on when we're looking on a 20 year time frame, which is really the, the time frame we have to be dealing with or talking about when we're talking about avoiding the most devastating aspects of the climate crisis. I mean, at this point, 20 years is even too long. We really need to be focused on 10 years. But when you look at that 20 year time frame, methane is 86 times more potent as a climate changing emission than carbon dioxide, right? And fracking is a primary source of methane emissions. And even NASA has demonstrated that in recent years, methane emissions have been on the rise primarily due to fracking. And in the waning weeks of the presidential election campaigns, who was out there shouting from the rooftops, I will not ban fracking. I will not stop fracking. Mm. It was President Biden. And so that was deeply disturbing. He didn't need to do that. All he had to do was focus on the powerful clean energy pathway that he had been focused on up until that point. But in the final weeks of the election, he went all in on fracking. And that was seriously disappointing. So that even just further solidified for me the incredible importance of people working at the state level to get transformational constitutional change so that we can force the states to do it better when it comes to the climate crisis, while we're trying to convince this new president and new administration that they cannot, they cannot be all in on fracking and say that they believe in science and that they're concerned about the climate and future generations. The two are mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. You cannot have fracking and avoid environmental devastation. It simply doesn't work. So basically, regardless of who's in office, we still have to work towards building first constitutional changes at the state level, and then hopefully getting enough of that passed, and then ultimately at the federal level as well. Now, corporate interests are obviously a huge force that we have to go against with their current stranglehold on our government. I know you also talk about the economic imperative of environmental constitutionalism. And a lot of us don't like that decisions in our society necessarily are dedicated first and foremost to or being influenced by financial interests. But the reality is that money still runs our system. And so people may be curious as to what economic incentive we can use to appeal to those in power who primarily speak that language of money. Such a, a really incredibly important point that you've just made. And you're right. When we when we talk about advancing constitutional environmentalism, we need to be coming at it from all angles, including the economic angle. And there is such a tremendous case to be made for environmental protection being a driver of a thriving economy and of economic growth. 
What we have seen over the history of our nation and what you can see over the history of the world is that when you have environmental degradation, you have economic decline. And when you clean up the air and you clean up the water and you do things in a way that's environmentally protective, it actually is a driver for economic growth and enhancement. So just, you know, all the way around, even industrial operators, pharmaceutical companies and others, even they need clean water in order to properly operate. And if the water is too contaminated for them to use, then they're forced to spend money and resources into cleaning up that water before they can use it to create their products and make their operations. So that's sort of one thing, right, is there's this cost payment, cost savings element of it for industry. What we can show really in every kind of industry, when, when, when people and companies do things the right way in terms of the environment, they save money and they make money. So I just gave you one example. Another example is in the context of Development, whether you're talking about residential development or commercial development, when developers come in and they destroy the the landscape, the forest, the environment, the wetlands, they create a lot of damaging runoff and pollution that they then have to develop a system to manage, a stormwater management system that costs them a lot of money. Um, Doing all the moonscaping of the landscape costs them a lot of money. If they instead develop in a way that's protective of the environment, where they reduce their footprint, they reduce the volume of runoff, they actually save money on the front end in terms of development costs. The other thing is they end up with a much more attractive development project. Again, whether it's residential or commercial, it's much more attractive. And so those homes and those buildings, the developers are able to sell more quickly at a higher price tag. So they actually make more money more quickly when they're done with their project, when they do it in an environmentally protective way. If we look at the energy industry, what we can see is that for every million dollars invested in clean and renewable energy options versus being invested in dirty fossil fuels, you create three to five times the number of jobs. That's tremendous job growth and tremendous economic income for local communities in terms of tax dollars. When we avoid polluted runoff and more runoff that creates flooding and flood damages. Um, When we avoid air pollution and water pollution, what we also do is we avoid flooding and flood damages and healthcare costs from people who are getting sick because they're breathing the contaminated air, perhaps more quickly falling prey to things like the coronavirus. All of that from a community perspective, right, those are all costs that the community either has to pay for or can save on, right? If we if we devastate our environment, all of our tax dollars go up so we can be responsive to flooding and flood damages and drought and wildfires and healthcare costs. On the other hand, if we do things that are in an environmentally protective way that reduce environmental degradation and pollution, then we don't have to invest that money in addressing flood damages. We can instead invest that money in other ways that enhance our communities and enhance our economy. And it's the same, you know, whether you're talking about healthcare or drought or wildfires, I mean, really across the board, the saving of that money allows for a more productive investment of that savings as well. So I don't really care what industry you're in or what you're talking about, whether you're talking about energy or development or product creation or whatever. When you do it 
the environmentally protective way, you save money, you make money, and you allow the opportunity for greater economic growth. I know at this point, a lot of people are also concerned about the Supreme Court consisting of more conservative judges, 6-3, as opposed to more liberal ones. Not to say that each of their personal biases necessarily will dictate their work in the courts, but also it's just not possible for anyone to be completely objective, especially when so much of the language in law is up for interpretation. We do know, for example, the new Supreme Court justice thinks that climate change is not factual, but a political controversy that she doesn't feel comfortable taking sides on. We also know that whatever executive orders President-elect Biden might make for climate action or whatever other environmental policies are passed in Congress, they can still make their ways to the Supreme Court to ultimately then be struck down. So just as an example, if we were to be presumptive that our Supreme Court currently does not really recognize the urgency of the climate crisis or see the value of our shared earth, what would happen if we actually had environmental constitutionalism in place at the federal level? What if we, we've already achieved that? How might this change our outcomes across the board and truly meaningfully reshape our future for the better? So I do want to say that I think we have the most anti-environment Supreme Court in place that certainly I have ever seen or experienced. I mean, it, it truly is not just a challenge, but a crisis when you're thinking about the environment or civil rights of all kinds, you know, when we look at this, this current Supreme Court. So I'm with you on that. It's a real big problem. Now, the thing is, is if we had a federal green amendment, right, the power of a constitutional amendment is it is a direct to the courts for what they can and cannot do. It is the people clearly expressing to government the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch, what their expectations are for government and where they are agreeing government is allowed to take control of their lives. So, for example, one of the reasons why you have such powerful judicial decisions in defense of things like gun rights and speech rights and religious freedoms, even when justices don't quite agree with those, those mandates or perspectives, is because the constitutional language is very clear that these are rights that we, the people, have reserved unto ourselves and really told government you may not act in a way that infringes upon them either directly or allows infringement by others. When we add a constitutional environmental rights amendment, we will be clearly laying out that mandate in the environmental context. We will clearly be telling the legislative branch and the executive branch and the judicial branch that they are constitutionally bound to undertake actions, activities, and render decisions that respect and protect the environmental rights of all people including future generations, regardless of their race, their ethnicity, their income, or where they live. And so it is the clarity of the language and the clarity of the mandate that becomes so powerful. Now, does it mean that the justices won't get it wrong? And does it mean that unscrupulous justices might not do their best to try to find a workaround and undermine the constitutional mandate? No, it doesn't mean that we can prevent that. But it does mean that there's a lot less risk of that because of the clarity of the language, number one. And number two, what it also means is that when our justices intentionally, intentionally render decisions that are undermining 
we will always have the opportunity to find new pathways, new challenges to force the judges to rethink that bad decision and get it right. And you can just look at what happened with civil rights to, to see that point, that the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment certainly did not have the most auspicious of beginnings when it came to judicial interpretation by the courts. But because the language was in the Constitution, people were able to rally around that language get organized, create the powerful civil rights movement that started to push back on those bad decisions and ultimately force the judges and the justices to turn things around. The same thing happened in Pennsylvania with Pennsylvania's Environmental Rights Amendment. So I can't promise, I can't promise that the judges are not going to intentionally or unintentionally misinterpret or misapply the Federal Green Amendment when we ultimately secure it. But I can promise that ultimately we will get the decisions that set it right, even if justices intentionally get it wrong. And I and I am willing to bet that the clarity of the language that we will have placed in the Constitution, along with the power of the grassroots organizing that is going to be necessary to force the ultimate addition of that language to the federal constitution as well as to the state constitutions will make it much less likely that the courts will in fact get it wrong because through all of that education and organizing, we will not have only have transformed the hearts and the minds of people and the way they think about the environment, environmental protection, and their environmental rights, but we will necessarily have resulted in a change in government because everybody who runs for elected office will be asked, do you believe in my right to clean water? Do you believe in the right of my child to take a breath of air without getting an asthma attack or getting cancer? And if they give the wrong answer, they won't be elected to office, right? And it's those people who are elected to office who ultimately put in the, the seat of power at the Supreme Court, those justices. So it, it becomes a, a wholesale change in our culture and our conversation and our belief system as we do the work of advancing a constitutional Green Amendment movement. And that's one of the powers of it. It's not just about getting the constitutional amendment language. It's about all the transformational organizing and thinking that is taking place while on the path of making that happen. I know it's impossible for you to have a timeline in mind, but if all goes according to plan and we really built up momentum for environmental constitutionalism, do you have an idea on how quickly we might be able to start having real changes across the Constitution in, in different states? And do you also have ideas on which states might be the easiest for, for us to be able to create these changes within? So right now, we already have inspired five states to put forth Green Amendment proposals. That's New York, New Jersey, Maryland, West Virginia, and Vermont. And we've got three more states where we're anticipating proposals in the coming year. That's New Mexico, that's Maine, and that's Oregon. And there are yet another set of states where there's really serious conversation and action and activity, maybe even near-term proposals in these states as well, places like Kentucky and Hawaii, Colorado, Connecticut, Delaware, and more. So, you know, people are really inspired by this pathway for change. 
The key is doing it the right way. And that's why, again, I urge people, please don't go off and try to do it on your own. Green Amendments for the Generations is here to help you. And we have had a situation where people went off and tried to do it on their own and they totally mucked it up and mucked it up with an M. And um, unfortunately, I had to get involved and urge people to, to vote against the proposal that had been put forth because if it had been advanced, it would have derailed our entire Green Amendment movement because it would have set such a bad precedent and it wouldn't have resulted in any protective change. So please get informed. That's one thing. But as you can see, people, by the number of states that I've mentioned, and there are even more that I haven't mentioned, this really, people see the power and importance of this kind of transformational change. And we are inspiring changed hearts and changed minds every single week. So I think that in the next year or two, we are going to have green amendments on the pathway to being secured in nearly half a dozen states with another half a dozen well on the way. And truly my hope is, you know, what I think happens is the more people learn about this, the more states they see doing this, the more states learn about it and the more states want to do it. So I think it's like a snowball that's rolling down the hill that's going to get faster and faster and bigger and bigger sooner rather than than later. And my hope is that we really in, you know, five years are going to be looking at some very serious success in terms of amendments in state constitutions and can start to reflect on is now the right time to be pursuing a federal green amendment, understanding that every single constitutional amendment we secure is going to make a big difference in the state where it has happened, number one. And number two, every place where we have this Green Amendment growing, we are changing the way people are thinking about environmental protection. We are changing the expectations that they are having of their government officials. And we are starting to impact every aspect of people's lives, including who they decide to elect into government office. So even the conversation is helping increase environmental expectations and protection. Really exciting. And as you mentioned, this is really going to, because you're changing the foundations of what a lot of other things are based off of, it can really ripple off into a lot of positive changes across all aspects of our society and culture. So we're definitely very excited about this work. As we're wrapping up, what would you like our listener to walk away from this conversation? And what are some of your calls to action for them? So, you know, This is so powerful for protecting the environment for all of us here today, but also for those future generations. And that there is no aspect of environmental protection that is not benefited by this Green Amendment movement. Very notably, environmental justice protections, because you may have heard me note, and it's worth reiterating, that what a Green Amendment also does is it ensures that all people regardless of race, ethnicity, income, religion, where they live, that we all have the same constitutional right to a healthy environment and that government officials must protect the environmental rights of all the people, including future generations, equitably. So from an environmental justice perspective, this is really powerful protection and this is the kind of systemic reform that we need on the justice front. So I want people to really understand that and hopefully embrace that. Again, I really want to urge people come together with us in partnership. Let's not try to work, you know, in our own silos, but let's all work together in partnership to advance this Green Amendment movement. 
depending on where you live, right, you may live in a state like New Mexico or like New Jersey, where there's powerful momentum right now for advancing a green amendment, or you might live in another state where, where action or activity is yet to happen. And maybe you can be the leader to make it happen. I mean, our powerful green amendment movement started in New Mexico because one person one person heard me on a show like this and picked up the phone and called me and we started a conversation and it all started from there. So one person can make change. The way to figure out what is happening in your state to start to think about how to get involved or to figure out how to get in touch with me is www.4forthegenerations.org. You can find out all you need to there and let's join together in partnership and make this transformational change to protect all of us. Beautiful. I did have one more follow-up question on this. If this can be so powerful, why is it that our most notable environmental advocates in government are not really portraying or laying out this path for people as an option? I want to ask people who are listening to this now, how many of you thought about the value or the failure to protect the right to clean water in the same way we protect gun rights or speech rights. Most people are going to say, no, I never thought about it. That's why, you know, other leaders aren't thinking about it because nobody ever taught it to them. Nobody ever put forth this idea. So once people start to hear about it and learn about it, they get really enthusiastic. Um, that's number one. But number two, you know, I'm, I, I really want to, to me, I am pursuing this in a very careful, thoughtful, strategic way. And so when other environmental leaders see the power and importance of this pathway for environmental reform, there again, I urge them, please don't try to go off and do this on your own. Don't try to go off and use this as your fundraising tool come get in touch and let's work together in partnership because there are not that many people that fully understand or appreciate how or how this is so powerful, how it works, what are the critical elements that must be advanced and cannot be sacrificed. And the worst thing that would happen is people just go off on their own and try to co-opt this powerful idea. Better for us all to come together in partnership right, and advance this idea because I have been very careful and very strategic in how I have been advancing this. And so that's my only plea is let's do it together. Let's not have people go off and, and do it on their own, whatever your role is in your community or in environmental protection, right? We all really are equal and we all really need to be working together. What is an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? Last Child in the Woods was a very profound and transformative book for me in terms of the power and importance of children getting access to nature and also the secret life of trees, just transformative in really understanding the living life of trees and how they communicate with one another and with us. So those were both two transformative books for me. That second one, I definitely agree. It was hugely transformational for me as well. 
What do you tell yourself to stay motivated and inspired? Every time I feel down, I, I tell myself two things and I say it out loud. It's a true honor, a true honor to do the work I do to protect the environment for present and future generations and to protect the earth for the earth's sake. I am honored to do this work and I remind myself of that every single day. And the other thing I tell, you know, I remind myself is that I truly love my life. I love my life. And so even on those days when I feel down or the hurdles seem so huge, it's an honor to do this work and I love my life and I pick myself up and I get back on the right path again. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? People like you who are clearly dedicated to protecting the earth, protecting the environment and protecting all the communities across our nation and around the world. It's just amazing how many powerful and inspirational people like you are out there and are truly, truly dedicated to protecting the environment and to protecting others. And every time I talk with somebody like you or I witness the work of someone like you, I am inspired. Thank you. And I'm constantly inspired through every conversation that I have. So thank you so much for this really thought-provoking and just very motivating discussion because a lot of conversations in this field can feel kind of doom and gloom, but this truly does give me hope. And I love that there is a concrete path forward that we can see. So we are coming to a close here, but to our listener, you can learn more by going to www.forthegenerations.org. You can also find them on social media. All will be linked in our show notes. And then be sure to also check out Maya's book called The Green Amendment, which you can find on her website at www.mayavanrossum.green. Maya, thank you so much for joining us today and for your leadership in tackling our ecological injustices and health crises through a deeper and more much needed foundational approach. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Whatever is your talent, right, pursue it. Because whether you're an artist, you're an engineer, you're a scientist, you're a lawyer, you're a good thinker, you're a good speaker, you're a good marketer, when it comes to environmental protection, there is a place for you in that body of work somewhere. So whatever your skill set, whatever makes you happy and drives you, learn about that, pursue that, and you will find your place in the environmental protection field because there is space, not just space for all of those talents, but there's a need for all of those talents. Green Dreamer, we're coming full circle here. If our show has moved you, we'd love to get your direct support at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Today's intermission song featured is Less Traveled by Johanna Warren. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I will catch you in the next episode. <laughs>